Today, we're starting with a poem. Start with ocean. A shallow sea, populous with plankton and giant fish that feed on it. Let storms and sunset flash across the sea. As bodies die, let them drift down to mud. Then let there be light and fire and heaving rock on rock. Let the sea sink. Let it pour away into other younger seas. Let the land rest damp, exhausted, rich. Now let ice appear from north and east and west. Let it move south to form an isle of green in a sea of snow. Let this happen over and over and over for half a million years. Let low pink quartzite hills hold back the ice. Let lakes appear beyond inland seas with coastlines of blue snow. Let eagles float above the blue and icy waves, fishing. Now, catastrophe. Let water break through ice, drowning sleeping bears still in their caves and wolves and fleeing deer and mice. Let a great pathway open on the land, marking the pathway of the flood. Let creeks and rivers deepen crevices in rock and gullies form and soften under wind. Let oaks take root and shagbark hickory and elderberry, yarrow, bee balm, clover. Big and little bluestem, rattlesnake master, downy gentian, boneset, dogbane, ragweed, and thickets of sumac, blackberry, blackcap, rose. Let black soil deepen over limestone seabed, except where it erupts on crowns of hills. Then, not long ago, let people come. Start with ocean, end with black earth. This poem takes us through the geologic history of a single place, Black Earth, Wisconsin. It's called Getting to Black Earth, and it was written by Patricia Monahan, 1946 to 2012, was a poet, writer, teacher, and scholar with interests in Celtic mythology, women's spirituality, and the communion of the arts and sciences. While teaching at DePaul University, she co-founded the Black Earth Institute outside Black Earth, Wisconsin to encourage writers and artists exploring the connections between justice, spirit, and the earth. Monahan's reflection on the geologic history of the driftless landscape in the lower Wisconsin River appeared in the Institute's About Place journal. Reading the poem was Kurt Miney, an environmental historian, conservation biologist, writer, and more. We'll get back to him in a little bit. But listening to that poem, the first half at least should be familiar to you as a listener of Under Our Feet. We have the oceans covering Wisconsin, laying down sedimentary rocks made up of microscopic skeletons of sea creatures in shallow tropical oceans. The heaving rock on rock, that's referring to the Baraboo orogeny, which created the distinctive purple rock you might have visited at Devil's Lake State Park. Those are also the low quartzite hills, low because of a billion years of erosion. Then you have the ice, appearing from north and east and west. But the Isle of Green, as well as that catastrophic flood, that's the focus today. We'll learn why if you were watching the repeated glaciations that covered Wisconsin over the past million years or so, and that we talked about in the last episode. That ice never got down to an Isle of Green in the southwest part of the state. 
including the town of Black Earth. We'll also learn about that channel-carving deluge, those massive lakes, and the distinctive topography and biota of this region. Also, we get into the people, and what this unique landscape has inspired and provoked in its human residents. All that, and more, when we continue. But first, a quick reminder to take a minute to rate and review the show. Tell your friends. Maybe you have an aunt or a cousin who's always liked hounding for agates on Lake Superior. Wouldn't that person love to learn more about the rocks of Wisconsin and their stories? Also, the best way to support the show is to go subscribe on our Patreon page. Three bucks a month gets you a bumper sticker. Fifteen a month gets you an exclusive Under Our Feet t-shirt. Any amount gets you a shout-out in the opening credits. Thanks to Andrea Dutton, our most recent subscriber. You can find a link to join at uofpod.org. And with that, let's get to it! Welcome to Under Our Feet, the podcast where we go deep into the earth and deep into time to discover the geologic forces and events that shape the world around us. I'm Rudy Molinick, and this is Season 1, The Geology of Wisconsin. That poem, written by Patricia Monahan, walked through the big geologic and ecologic history of one place, Black Earth, which sits on the eastern edge of the never-glaciated Driftless area of Wisconsin. Personally, I think there's something special about this place. Every summer, my partner's family drives 40 minutes west of Madison to American Players Theater in Spring Green, where they put on outstanding plays outdoors on the summer nights. From Madison, you can get there by driving straight down a large state road, or you can take the back roads. One of these, County Road T, weaves through deep wooded hills, passing occasional small farmsteads and cabins. From the relative flatness of the glaciated part of the state, this road is inviting and intimate. It's one of my favorite drives. In fact, the area is just one of my favorite places. This summer, my partner and I are getting married just down the road from that theater, and across the street from Taliesin, where the noted architect Frank Lloyd Wright built his workshop, his school, and his home. We'll talk more about him soon. The Driftless area is the southwest corner of the state, and it's so named because it lacks drift, the jumble or debris that glaciers leave behind once they melt. Early geologists puzzled over drift, originally ascribing it to the remnants of the biblical flood. But that explanation broke down in the Driftless area. If the flood covered the whole earth, how did it miss southwest Wisconsin? Once glacial ice was invoked as the origin of drift, though, new questions came up. Among them, why didn't the glacial ice reach into the areas around Spring Green, Viroqua, and Dodgeville? The driftless area is a unique landscape in the region. From the last episode, you learned all the ways that glaciers shape the landscape, but here there was no flowing ice. So the landscape is defined by flowing streams and rivers incising into the bedrock, not by ice scraping and smoothing. But before we get too far into describing the landscape, we need to discuss why the ice never got here. If you listened closely to the last episode on glacial geology, you might remember when we stood on a high bedrock ridge near Lake Superior, and Luke Zoot told us how the amount of ice it took to fill the deep Superior Basin meant that the ice that overflowed south over that bedrock ridge was limited. It didn't have the capacity to keep flowing farther south. This left the southwest corner of Wisconsin protected. 
To refresh our memories on those glacial dynamics and to learn more about the landscape of the Driftless area, I spoke to... Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Eric Carson. I'm a geomorphologist with the Wisconsin Geological and Natural History Survey and a professor at UW-Madison. Geomorphologist. That means Eric studies... It's the study of the Earth's surface and the processes that form it. Um, a lot of times we talk about um, two ends of geomorphology. We talk about the, the descriptive end of what the landscapes look like and the processes that, that form them. And then the other end of it is talking about the timing of, of events that happened and, and when and how different events took place to shape the landscape to what we see it today. He spent most of the last 15 years learning and studying the geomorphology of the Driftless Area. So the Driftless Area is a portion of almost entirely southwest Wisconsin. There's, there's a little bit of it in uh, northwest Illinois and maybe little slivers in Iowa and Minnesota. But it's an area that during the cycle of maybe as many as a couple dozen glaciations that have happened over the past two and a half million years, the area was never covered by ice, never run over by ice. And so uh, what we see is a much different landscape. We see a landscape that's formed by the processes of rivers rather than glaciers. So this is the little Isle of Green in Patricia Monahan's poem, surrounded but never flooded, again and again by the sea of ice that is the North American ice sheet. That turns out to have big consequences for how the landscape looks, feels, and changes over time. So when, when you're in the portion of the state that's covered by glaciers, what you're seeing is a landscape that is glacial debris that's covering the landscape. And so it's generally a fairly low relief kind of landscape back in the glaciated part of the state. Not only do glaciers scrape off the high parts of the landscape, the material they carry with them fills in the valleys, so it evens everything out. This isn't so in the Driftless area. And as you move across the moraine that marks the extent of glaciation and out into the Driftless area, you move into this part of the state where rivers have been cutting down into the relatively flat-lying Paleozoic bedrock and carving out these fairly deep river systems and, and deep valleys. And so you go from this sort of, I don't want to call it mundane, but I'll call it mundane glacial landscape into this, all of a sudden you transition into these valleys that are, you know, in, in many places, several hundred feet from the valley floor up to the ridge and, and really pronounced topography. What's really happening in the Driftless area is that you're seeing the whole southern part of the state as it would have looked if it weren't for those pesky ice sheets. It's those Paleozoic sedimentary rocks, the sandstones, limestones, and shales that we talked about in episode four. They're like a layer cake, but for millions of years, rivers have been slicing into them, opening up these deep valleys. If we, if we were to strip away the sediment from across all of southern Wisconsin, the bedrock would actually be very similar across the whole portion of the state, from Lake Michigan all the way over to the, to the Mississippi River. You've got the flat-lying Paleozoic sedimentary rocks that have been pretty deeply carved by these rivers that have existed for millions of years, predating the, the glaciations. Uh, we don't see them in the south central and southeastern part of the state because all of that topography carved by the rivers has been covered over by glacial sediment. You know, as we get closer to the ice margin, we can start to pick up hints of it. You know, the, the four lakes of the Madison area sit in an ancient 
bedrock river valley that's been filled in by glaciation. It's a, you know, it's no coincidence that the four lakes are lined up in a row because they're all in the same uh, ancient river valley that's been buried. And then as you get really close to the margin, if you're driving from Madison to Sauk City or Madison to Spring Green, all of a sudden you can start seeing the effect of, of these deep valleys. And then when you get beyond the, beyond the moraine into the driftless area, then boom, it's in, in, the, it's in sort of full effect. So in the driftless area, you get more topographic relief than you do in the glaciated parts of the state, where the ice sheets filled in the low spots and scraped down the highs. You get to actually see the work that rivers and water have done over millions of years, which is obscured elsewhere in the state. But why didn't the ice ever get here? Why is there this little pocket of Wisconsin that escaped the fate of its surroundings? It's a multiple multiple cause explanation, um, and that's because there's multiple cycles of glaciations that have that have come and gone. And, and before I get into why ice never covered the driftless area, one thing to, that's really important to note is that the whole area was never completely surrounded by ice at one time. There have been multiple cycles of glaciations. Some of the older ones butt up against the western edge of the driftless area, the younger ones um, on the northern and and eastern side of it. So it, it had ice up against it at, during different glaciations, but it was never completely surrounded by ice. As far as why it was never covered, um, for the older glaciations, those were, those were ice that was coming from the prairie provinces of Canada down across um, Minnesota and Iowa flowing in a southeasterly direction. And probably it's, it's just a happenstance kind of thing. You know, the extent of the extent of any glacier is a response to climate. It can only go as far in here in the northern hemisphere. It can only go as far south as there's ice supply before it starts melting away. And so the limit of, the, of that ice that was flowing southeast out of Minnesota, which is pretty closely coincident to the Mississippi River, really was probably just a happenstance of climate. When you look at the more recent glaciations, and especially the most recent glaciation, the one that peaked about 30, 25,000 years ago, somewhere in there, that ice was actually coming out of the Northeast, out of the Hudson Bay lowland and flowing down to the Southwest. To say that again, put slightly differently, the ice sheets have advanced and retreated across Northern North America many times over in the last two and a half million years. None of them covered the driftless area, but neither did any one ice sheet surround the whole area at one point in time. Part of this is due to climate. Glaciers and ice sheets can only exist where there's more supply of ice, from snow or from flow, than there is melting. The driftless area happened to be right on the other side of that line. Another aspect of this is partly due to the changing source of ice. If you remember the glacial geology episode, Luke and Libby both talked about glaciers being like globs of honey on a desk. They spread out from a dome away from the center. What Eric just told us is that the place where the honey was dropped changed from a more western source to a more eastern source on Hudson Bay. And as we learned last time, when ice has to come from the northeast, it has to run across Lake Superior, which gives it some challenges to overcome. And if you look at a map of glacial deposits in this part of the country, you can see that the, the, the glacial deposits extend all the way down into central Illinois and central Indiana, so far to the south of here. And that ice was actually getting funneled down the Lake Michigan lowland. So nice gentle trough that it could go down. 
um, and flow far to the south. A little bit farther to the west of that, the ice was actually trying to cross the Lake Superior Basin. And you, you've talked earlier in the podcast about the, the failed rift of North America and, 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 you know, that's part of why Lake Superior is so deep compared to the other Great Lakes. So the ice was trying to cross this tremendously deep rift on the Earth's surface. And not only was it trying to fight across a deep rift, Lake Superior is oriented perpendicular to the flow of ice, whereas Lake Michigan is, is oriented parallel. So the ice could just flow right down the shallow Michigan basin, whereas it really got checked up trying to flow up and out of the Lake Superior basin. And so um, when it got up and out and in the northernmost Wisconsin, it simply didn't have, didn't have the resources to continue flowing farther south. So that's what the driftless area looks like and why it looked that way. And this is something that we've tried to incorporate all throughout the season, but I want to call it out really specifically here. And that's how these geologic stories play into our human ones. The driftless area is one of those places where that interplay is really clear. And to learn more about that connection, I talked to the guy who read us that poem at the start of the episode. Kurt Miney is my name. And what do I do? I am a conservation biologist, writer, historian. Uh, I do a lot of work with conservation nonprofit organizations. I'm a part-time professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And uh, I'm an alum of the university and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. But most of my work over my career has been at the interface of science and conservation and uh, policy and uh, ethics and whatever we need to do in order to advance a uh, healthier relationship between people and place. You might notice that's not unlike the goals of this very podcast. You also might notice a bit of wind noise in the background. I interviewed Kurt at his house in Sauk County, Wisconsin, and for us to get a view of the landscape as we discussed it. It was about a 200-yard walk up the bluff. Now I live outside of town, about six miles west of town, in this stretch of country, and we're sitting on top of this bluff looking out over a pretty expansive grassland. I've been here uh, for the last 12 years. And... The more I learn about it, the more entrancing it becomes because we are, in fact, at the eastern portal to the Driftless area, the east coast of the Driftless. So we're looking at a landscape that stretches from the east where a line of bluffs marks the easternmost extent of the Driftless area in this area, and to the west the next 90 miles or so to the Mississippi River is what's called the Driftless. So I ended up here on the eastern edge of the Driftless area uh, of Wisconsin. And I knew about what the Driftless area was before then, but um, it was the beginning of my deeper education into what this landscape is all about. Its history, its geologic history, its human history, its uh, present and perhaps even thinking about the future a little bit here. Here we are. What do we see from the top of this bluff? A pretty prominent bluff overlooking the valley of the Wisconsin River, which stretches from, at this point, east to west, almost straight west, east to west, from 
um, Sauk Prairie, Wisconsin, and all the way west to where it meets the Mississippi River, about 90 miles away. And we're looking across the valley and we're looking at bluffs popping up on either side. So we were sitting there, looking over the Wisconsin River flowing west towards the Mississippi on the eastern edge of the Driftless Area. And I put the question to Kurt, what makes this area special today, 14,000 years after the nearest ice sheet left the vicinity? I wanted to know why I felt drawn to this place, just a short drive from Madison, but so totally different. Well, my shorthand joke on this is, this landscape provides relief. <laughs> Literal and figurative. Um, well, and it, maybe there is more to it than a, a, just the jokey pun of it, um, that in the otherwise relatively flat Midwest, the Driftless area is not flat. Um, it has topography that is different from the rest of the region. The hills and valleys of the Driftless area um, provide that variance in the landscape that, I don't know, captures the eye. The imagination plays in a different way over the landscape. You see plants and animals in a different way here because it's not so thoroughly converted to agriculture um, and industrial agriculture especially as it has pretty well wiped clean a lot of the Midwestern landscape. We know that this area still retains its character in a different way uh, and that includes the character of the plants and animals. That memory of the human story of native culture over all those millennia and still are here, our Ho-Chunk neighbors and friends, as well as other tribal communities, are still present and have always been present and will always be present. So all those layers of history feed the imagination and the eye and the, maybe even the hopes <laughs> of, of all of us who have come into this landscape by one form or another, even if we're not conscious of it. So there's something here in the Driftless that evokes all these layers of the landscape. And being able to see all those layers is a powerful experience that builds a connection to the land. Kurt goes farther though, and in a sense hits on why I wanted to make this podcast in the first place. You were talking earlier about how in Wisconsin especially, you don't have to be trained as a geologist or a scientist to absorb the character of the landscape. It's one of the things that maybe has characterized Wisconsin and made us such a land-attuned culture um, in so many different ways. It's not just one way of being attuned to land, but to say that there's a uh, presence of the land in our imaginations and in our lives that distinguishes us in some ways from even our neighbor states, let's say Illinois or Iowa, maybe. Although I have no doubt in Illinois or Iowa, you feel every bit is connected to the land, but it's a different landscape. So in the Driftless, we're, we have a different topography, and that doesn't determine this connection, but it has ways of encouraging it in some way that is partly mysterious, because it's our human response to the place and the... the voices we hear and the songs we hear and the music we hear and the uh, creatures we see and the way we absorb signals <laughs> from landscapes of our hearts 
so there's a mystery to it, but there's also this more kind of rational way of saying, well, I don't know, um, this is a good place to be for me right now. <laughs> and I think I'll stay here for a bit. So I don't know if that's a long-winded answer to a question that I would answer in a completely different way if you were to ask me again. To be fair, Kurt was quick to admit that it's not just the unglaciated part of the state that he feels this way about. I adore and feel that same connection to glaciated places as well. I yearn <laughs> to be on the shores of Lake Superior and to walk the hills of the Kettle Moraine or to, you know, sit there at the foot of the terminal moraine and think of a wall of ice 5,000 feet high. I mean, I get the same thrill out of those places as well. Um, but here we are, and here we are. Um, maybe the drift, that sense of the driftless as being stable, relatively stable over a long, long time. And the driftless area has been stable for a long, long time. We talked with Eric about how the landscape evolution here was measured in millions of years, rather than the thousands that we talk about in glaciated areas. In this stability, it's been a refuge for human and non-human inhabitants for a long time. This divot in the ice sheet of southern Wisconsin was also a refugium, as we say in ecology, for plants and animals that could survive in this little pocket of iceless land through the ice ages. And there are a lot of stories. There are a number of species of plants and animals that endured. My favorite tale on this is the eastern chipmunk, at least a po subpopulation of the eastern chipmunk, that, that uh, found refuge in the driftless area. And uh, studies have shown that, in fact, the radiation of that population out of the driftless helped repopulate the chipmunk population of the upper Midwest. And to use that term, refugium, again, it was a refugium for people, too. So, and then the peopling of the landscape. And uh, I'm almost hesitant to even get into it because there are lots of stories coming from lots of different sources. And I have only access to my own sources and I'm only learning about other sources. But I know if you talk to our native friends, uh, especially in the Ho-Chunk Nation, We'll talk about how they were here before the uh, last ice ages. They, they, they were here through three stages of ice ages. And so the, in the Western perspective, the 14,000 years, 12,000 years of uh, human habitation that archeologists provide um, tells the story of the peopling of the land as well. And how the Driftless area was, again, a, a refugium in some sense for people dynamically changing through all those centuries. Um, people coming and going, people drifting along the edges of the ice. Some of the oldest known recovered populations, uh, uh, remains of um, mammoths from southern Wisconsin, a lot over by Lake Michigan in the Kenosha Racine area, but also over here there have been mammoths uh, that have popped out of the ground. Later on, it in more recently, eight to twelve hundred years ago, this area is populated by the mound building cultures, and the effigy mounds are still extant in some areas. Although we have tragically lost probably fifty percent, maybe more, of uh, 
of the effigy mounds and right where we are right now would have been a, a spot where it, in fact there are rec historical records of, of mounds very close to where we're sitting but they're no longer extant. So the peopling of this place is a story unto itself written on top of that geology but connected to it connected intimately to it and so the changing of human cultures over thousands of years still reflects in to some degree the lay of the land and one big way that the lay of the land and human culture intersect is through agriculture the growing of food the driftless area has long been a place defined by agriculture and innovation in ways of growing with the land and not just on it. Agriculture here didn't start with white folk or European folk coming into the landscape. Uh, there are ancient systems of agriculture that native folks have practiced here going back at least 1500 years, 2000 years. So we have, we have knowledge of those systems, not enough. We, <laughs> You can learn a lot from how agriculture was practiced over hundreds and hundreds of years from our native predecessors. Europeans came in without a knowledge of this landscape. Without knowledge, but they saw fertile soils blown in from the dust left behind by the neighboring ice sheets and decided to give farming a go on this land they now wrongly claimed as rightfully theirs. But it didn't go so well, and the quote-unquote traditional monocropping quickly depleted the fertile soils. Um, in fact, the dairy revolution was part of that adjustment, switching from monocultures of grain that depleted soils and, and depleted the nutrients and invited in pests in the mid-1800s, to switching to dairy, which at least began to change the nutrient cycling in the, in the agroecological system, making it somewhat more sustainable. But in the driftless area, you are especially having to be cognizant of the vulnerability of your soils on these steep slopes. And it's especially noticeable further west when you get closer to the Mississippi River. One of the little factoids about the driftless area is the, where we are, the further west you go, the steeper and deeper the slopes become and the valleys are. Um, so as you get over to the uh, in the driftless toward closer to the Mississippi River, you're really in some very steep, deep valleys over there, highly erodible. Because, as we've discussed, the rivers have had so long to incise, the landscape is hardly ever flat in the driftless. And that windblown soil, which is really light, it tends to remobilize when it's not held in place by plant roots. Like when, for example, it's been tilled for a farm field that wind-blown fine soil settling on the top of the land. Wonderful for agriculture, but also vulnerable. And so by the 1930s, after several generations of Euro farming, uh, that was not accustomed to the circumstances. They're plowing up and downhill straight. The way rain fell here is different than it was for, oh, the, let's just say the Norwegians who settled out especially closer to the Mississippi River. Um, the story is that they were used to more gentle rains falling in their old country and to have these stronger, more episodic rains that fell more heavily just not wasn't something they had been accustomed to in their traditional farming. In any case, by the late 20s, early 30s, portions of the Driftless area were disaster zones from soil erosion, massive, massive soil erosion on a scale we can't even hardly imagine anymore. 
As Kurt told me, that's a bad story, but there's a good story here too, because all the relief in the landscape, those steep hills, the driftless area, was largely protected from the industrial agriculture that came to dominate the other areas of the upper Midwest that had been smoothed by the erosive and depositional power of those glaciers. Because of the very nature of the topography, you simply can't farm in the same way that now we farm in so much of the rest of the Midwest and the rest of the world for that matter. The industrialization of agriculture that has accelerated beginning especially after World War II has transformed the world where we practice it. And you don't have to go far from here into uh, other parts of Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, the upper Midwest, and the corn and soybean sea to understand that. Um, I was reading something by a friend the other day. It said, you know, in Iowa, it's nothing to have a 4,000, 5,000 acre solid field of corn. You can't do that in the Driftless. There's hardly a spot in the Driftless where you can have a field that's 4,000 acres big. And the machinery that has evolved to create that system of agriculture, yeah, you can still use it here, but you can't use it with the same economic advantage. So there has been something of a divergence in the last three generations where so much of the rest of the Midwest has gone big, getting bigger and bigger. And in the Driftless area, the scale of farming is still smaller. So the Driftless area seems to be bucking the trends of growing farm size in agriculture, which has been ongoing for at least the last 150 years. In fact, larger farms, which if you think about it means fewer farmers and more mechanized and carbon-emitting operations, all in all it's worse for people and worse for the environment, well larger farms were the official policy of the government, going back to the Reagan administration and even under the Trump administration. On a visit to a Wisconsin Dairy Expo in 2019, Trump's Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue said, quote, in America, the big get bigger and the small go out. The clear message, you shouldn't even try to make a living on a small family farm, which for dairy generally means an operation of less than a hundred-ish cows. In this mindset, it's better for that small family farmer to just sell out to a large company. But luckily for the dairy farmers of the Driftless area, the geologic history has provided them with a bit of a buffer from this cutthroat way of thinking. It's not been static, and it's not the way it was in 1945, but it has stayed at a scale that is different. And so what that has allowed, and it's held on, by the way, to more smaller dairies. And dairy has transformed more recently than other sectors in agriculture, corn, corn soybeans, hogs, etc. But now those trends have caught up to dairy, and we see in Wisconsin the dramatic, dramatic loss of smaller and mid-sized dairy farms. Well, they hung on in the Driftless and still hang on probably. I haven't checked the figures lately, but probably have held on to somewhat greater degree in the Driftless area. Because the landscape calls for diversity, it calls for greater diversity just to, in order to accommodate itself to the folds of the land, the literal uh, uh, differences in slope and aspect and uh, angle that you find in the Driftless, and no two corners of it are the same. You have to have a, a greater sense of how to fit your farming to fit the landscape here. 
and it's a challenge for our farming neighbors. Um, and there's lots of diversity within that community about how to do that. But in a general sense, the Driftless area has hung on to a more varied agricultural landscape than in so many other areas. And has, for that reason, become actually a bit of a laboratory for innovation as well. Someone once told me that restraints breed creativity. Well, in the Driftless area, the topography shaped by millions of years of geologic history is a restraint on conventional forms of agriculture. That's a good story of this place. The good story is that it was also one of the places for innovation for figuring out how we could turn that story around, how we could adopt new techniques and practices that would conserve soil and even begin to rebuild soil. And so again, out there, especially toward the Mississippi River, um, these practices of plowing along the contours of the hills of putting in strips of crops instead of solid blocks of it, for grassing the waterways where the water flows off the hills and into the valleys. And other techniques were adopted while they were designed, <laughs> invented, adopted, changed, perfected out here in the Driftless. It wasn't the only place in the country where it was going on, but in fact the very first place where a project of this on the scale of an entire watershed entire valley basically happened out uh, toward the Mississippi River in, in the valley known as Coon Valley, Coon Creek Watershed. And so that became uh, the very first watershed scale project in the country. But the innovation in agriculture necessitated by the unique character of the landscape, it didn't stop in the 1940s. And to this day, um, the pressures are changing and it's never static but many of those practices are still in place, uh, but we're still learning about what we need to do. But anyone who drives around this region, um, especially this time of year in the fall, and sees those winding fields along the hillsides, that's the legacy of that generation of soil and water conservationists, those contoured fields that go and listen along the lines of the of the land and of the hills and valleys of the Driftless. So um, there is another chapter still being written to this story and that is to say that uh, that crisis was in the early 30s. Now we have another crisis upon us and we'll have it for the rest of our lives of climate change and the impacts it's having. And in our region the most dramatic face of the crisis is intensive rainfall events. We have a dramatic increase, I think the number is 37% more extreme rainfall events in the last 40 to 50 years. Um, that is rains of four inches or more uh, falling and we've seen it almost every year now we see increasing incidence of intense rains and that means more flooding, it means more soil loss, it means uh, we have to rethink again how we uh, live in this region and how we use the land and how we protect the land. So um, the Driftless has, for that, because it is such a varied landscape with these various needs, has always been a center for, for innovation. Um, and I would say that probably goes I wish we knew more about those thousands of years of native life here because I would have a feeling that they too, over those many, many generations, had to innovate in order to stay here 
and live so well for so long. So um, here we are again at a point of inflection where we have to think about how we fit our lives to the land instead of the other way around. And agriculture isn't the only realm where we've had to think about how to fit our lives to the land in the Driftless area, or the only realm where this landscape has inspired innovation. We're looking down the Wisconsin River. We can just see a little bit of the flowing water on the horizon. Just beyond that flowing water is the town of Spring Green. Spring Green is well known for lots of things, even though it's a small town here in the middle of the Driftless. One of the things it's known for is as the home uh, landscape of Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, the preeminent architect of the 20th century, most people would agree. And he's well known for, of course, what's called the prairie style of architecture, this organic approach to design of human structures, which we see now both from his amazing buildings that still remain on the landscape, but also through the ripple effects of that through through the 20th century and through the whole field of architecture and urban design and on and on and on. And most people, when they think of the prairie school of architecture, they think about those horizontal lines that define it, that kind of low-slung, intimate kind of feeling when you see one of these buildings. And we see it even in later day, you know, <laughs> uh, echoes of it in ranch-style homes and such. Having recently been on an unsuccessful search for a house in the Madison area, that ranch-style house is ubiquitous. Single story, you walk into a living room, ahead of you is a kitchen and a dining nook walled off, and then a single hallway sneaks off to one side with a few bedrooms and a bathroom. That prairie style of architecture is probably one of the biggest contributions he made to architecture, in terms of the buildings most of us interact with with our daily lives. But he's well known for some iconic pieces, like Falling Water, which bridges a waterfall in Pennsylvania, or the Guggenheim Museum in New York City, or his home and workshop, Taliesin in Spring Green, Wisconsin. So Frank Lloyd Wright was born, oh, 30-some miles that way, near Richland Center, Wisconsin. Um, and later uh, living in Spring Green. And so this notion that um, his style called the prairie style was because, oh, those horizontal lines are all about the prairie, because the prairie's flat, right? And you can't build obtrusive buildings in flat landscapes. It just doesn't fit, it doesn't look right. Well, uh, there's a correction that at least I've made in my mind on this, and I think some of the right scholars agree on this. And it really only hit me when I was at his home down the river there called Taliesin. And that's the beginning of the hint here. Taliesin is, his family prominently was Welsh by background. And the name Taliesin, the term Taliesin that he gave to his own home um, means shining brow, shining brow. And wow, that's kind of an odd name for a building. Why do you call it shining brow? Because it was his philosophy is never to build on top of a hill. You built on the brow of the hill. You built under the hill. So it wouldn't obtrude, intrude on the landscape. So, he didn't grow up in a flat prairie landscape. That's right. He didn't really grow up in the windswept prairie you might generally think of when you think of his architecture. Nope, his home landscape hadn't been smoothed down by the glaciers. It was instead in the heart of the Driftless area. 
He grew up in a rather rugged, hilly landscape and built his house in a rather hilly, rugged landscape. And what does this have to do with geology? Well, when you go to Taliesin, you'll see it. And you'll see it in the way he uses the literal sandstone quarried from the Driftless. Quarried. I was at one of those quarries not long ago, down on the other side of Spring Green. We walked up through the woods to this little pocket carved out of the sandstone, and there were slabs of sandstone still leaning against trees. And my friend who was taking me on this walk said, yeah, that's where Wright and his guys and his students and his friends would come up and they would quarry the rock here. It wasn't the only place. There were other quarries nearby, but it was one of them. So you see the buildings and you see the horizontal laying of the sandstone. It tells you something. Because if you remember back, the bedrock geology is flat stacked layers of sedimentary rocks from those Paleozoic oceans we talked about in episode 4. And Frank Lloyd Wright would have known this deeply. He was famously involved in all stages of his designs, from, as Kurt just told us, quarrying the rocks, to designing and building the furniture at the end. One consequence is that they weren't always comfortable places to live, but they are engaging spaces and totally of his mind. That means when you go into one of his houses, you're really seeing a window into how he thought. The key to this is when you go into one of the buildings and you look at how he displays the landscape, you see how he reveals the landscape from within and connects the interior to the exterior. It's a phenomenon that is almost visceral, um, and that was his genius, is you didn't have to understand this logically. You just walk th into through his rooms, and it's like walking through a cave, and then you come out to the lip of the cave, and you look out, and you see the horizontal lines and the line of hill, the ridge lines of the hills on the landscape. And you realize that the prairie style, in fact, was reflecting the horizontal beds of the geology, not the horizontality of prairie. Oh my God, that was like a revelation. Yeah. And again, it's almost beyond words. It's something you feel when you walk through one of those buildings. And so um, geology inspires us uh, in so many ways to think about time, obviously, and about the layers of time we inhabit, the, the embedded layers of time from the momentary to the eternal. Um, but it also inspires us in terms of the visual quality and characteristics. It inspires us to think about those stories of human habitation, recent and ancient, uh, inspiring and tragic, <laughs> all, all woven into the same places. And maybe that goes back to the question of what about this place grabs you? Because our layers of time are more accessible here, visually, viscerally. We think about those connections more directly or more consciously. Well, I know it's my podcast, but I don't think I'm going to be able to top that as a thought. So I'll leave it with you for a moment, but hang around for one more story of the Driftless Area. So we've told a big story of the Driftless Area so far, why the landscape is the way it is, and how that landscape has shaped societal and cultural trends. But now I want to return to the bluff where Kurt and I sat above the Wisconsin River, and a story that's a little more specific. The valley right here is about five miles across, and it's pretty flat. 
flatness, it might seem a little bit off to you given how much we've been talking about the steep topography carved by the rivers of the Driftless area over millions and millions of years, but sometimes rivers can change landscapes on a much faster time scale. A great flood was released from upriver. On the other side of the ancient Baraboo Hills, the ancient Precambrian quartzite of the Baraboo Hills, um, where now Wisconsin Dells sits. The Dells were carved out by the same event when the great uh, glacial lake Wisconsin finally carved its way through the ice dam and emptied itself in a massive flood that by the accounts I have heard and read took about a week to wash all the way down the river valley to uh, the Mississippi River and brought its great load of sand from the bed of Glacial Lake Wisconsin, um, what are now called the Sand Counties of Wisconsin, or the Central Sands. So we're sitting and looking over land that has a lot of sand in it, a five mile wide valley and at the base of the bluff uh, next to us here, I, I'm told that it goes down at least 150 feet, maybe more. Um, so we're looking at a great uh, slick of sand that came down the river, was carried by that great flood and deposited here. You'll remember this flood from the poem earlier. Glacial lakes are gigantic bodies of water that form on the edge of ice sheets and were also mentioned in the poem. They exist at the mercy of the ice itself, so when the ice becomes instable, these immense lakes can drain in a matter of hours. If you've ever been to one of the Great Lakes, you know how big they feel. Now imagine all that water, even more, rushing down a single river channel all at once. That was Glacial Lake, Wisconsin um, during the last glaciation. It was what is fundamentally the Wisconsin River being dammed up by ice where today it flows around the eastern end of the Baraboo Hills, but when, when ice advanced out to its maximum, it dammed up the river and formed this lake um, that was several thousand square kilometers in, in area, so a big lake. Um, it drained catastrophically when the, when the ice began to retreat as the ice was melting back. It drained completely catastrophically, and the, the drainage of this, of this lake, uh, which probably took no more than a few days, is what carved the Wisconsin Dells. So the, the gorges and in, cut into the sandstone were, were cut in this, in, almost geologically speaking, in an instantaneous uh, moment as this lake drained and carved down through those soft sandstones. The Dells are upstream of where Kurt and I sat. Where we were... The flood, uh, when, it, when it broke through the ice dam at the east end of the Baraboo Hills, you know, this tremendous volume of water um, flowed down the lower Wisconsin River Valley. And the, the Wisconsin River Valley itself is, is a little bit of an oddball because when you're down in, in it, you see these uh, bluffs on either side and, and up, up near Sauk City, it's you know, five, six, seven miles wide and, and you know, really flat. Think about that for a second and it'll become clear why where we were sitting was a bit of an oddball. What causes bluffs by a river is the erosive action of water. But on the bluffs above the Wisconsin River, you're sitting over a mile away from the course of the river. How'd they get so far away? 
it's flat because the the valley itself is filled in with you know 150 or 200 feet of sand and gravel from um, from the glaciations, and then this flood came down, and the combination of the of the glacial processes, probably augmented a little bit by this flood, has has cut these vertical bluffs in in a lot of places, cactus bluff, fairy bluff area that are that are you know really spectacular topography for this part of the country. Let's put this in perspective. A river might take a million years to carve a decently deep valley in this sort of landscape. But because of the proximity to the ice sheets here, the Wisconsin River has had several of its processes accelerated. What we perceive as the bottom of the river valley is actually 200 feet higher than the nearest bedrock. The difference between that, that 200 feet, it's full of pretty much loose sand that washed out of the glaciers. And then, as we sit over a mile from the river on top of a bluff, we're actually sitting at the edge of where that great outburst flood flowed when the ice dam at Devil's Lake burst. That whole empty expanse was once filled with miles across of churning tumultuous waters, if only for a geologic instant. That mismatch of past time and space to the present moment is part of what draws us into the region. Yeah, you know, one, one of the things I, that really attracts me to the Driftless area is the, the processes that formed it, specifically the lack of glaciation opens up a, a window into much deeper time. Now, obviously, we're not talking deeper time like you did with Gordon and with Marcia. That's episodes two and one of Under Our Feet, respectively, for those of you keeping track at home. But for us geomorphologists, if you look back three, four, five million years, then you're looking into what we think of as deep time. And so we, we get a chance to see a landscape of what the Midwest and what the central portion of North America must have looked like prior to the glaciations. And I, I've done some research over the past, oh, five, six, seven years I've been working on it that indicates that the, the Wisconsin River, the lower Wisconsin River that flows west today from the Baraboo Hills down to Prairie du Chien where it meets the Mississippi River, that valley was actually carved by a river that flowed east. Uh, it was part of a, a large river system that existed before the cycle of, of glaciations that were rivers that were flowing east across Wisconsin and Minnesota into the Great, uh, Great Lakes Lowland and then out to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Um, and, the, and the prime reason that we get a chance to see that are some of these deposits that are left behind in the lower Wisconsin River Valley because it was never glaciated and because we still have these old landscapes exposed at the Earth's surface. When we opened this podcast with Marcia Bjornrud telling us about the Pinocchio orogeny, we also heard that Wisconsin is one of the most geodiverse places in the world. Now, as this first season comes to a close, I want to revisit that idea in light of all the context we've gained over the last nine episodes. And not to be too overtly pro-Wisconsin, but people can dismiss the Midwest pretty easily, but Amongst the Midwest, I, you know, it still amazes me the diversity of geology, especially compared to some of the surrounding states. You know, you go south into into Indiana and Illinois, and there simply isn't the diversity either either in bedrock geology or in in surficial processes geomorphology that you get here in Wisconsin. So it's it's really a nexus of so many different geologic timeframes and 
processes and deposits. And within that nexus, there are endless stories to tell, and these nine episodes have given you but the broadest brushstrokes of the more than two billion years of history contained within the arbitrarily defined borders of Wisconsin. And each of us, we might have particular attachments to one phase of that history, to certain aspects of this varied landscape. For me, I feel inspired by the mid-continent rift rocks, those basalts that sprouted to the surface when the continent almost split in two, and the ancestral Lake Superior Basin was wrenched open. But that's just me. You know, I have become uh, particularly attached and uh, uh, <laughs> appreciative of the Driftless, but it's not exclusive to this region. Uh, part of the lesson for me of the Driftless is that every region is special, unique, and has its own layers of story to tell. And we need that so desperately. And so maybe that's another reason why the Driftless has uh, become such a, a, a magnet for creative thinking um, and for different thinking, is because it reattunes us to place. But that is accessible everywhere and anywhere and needs to be accessible everywhere and anywhere if we're going to find our different ways of living on land and with land and not just on top of land um, in ways that are, are enduring. And so the sense of place that the Driftless evokes. I like to think that it also inspires and can inspire all of us everywhere to uh, pay more attention and to those stories and to find our own different ways of celebrating it everywhere, everywhere. So, if nothing else, take that away from this podcast. Even if you don't remember a single geologic fact we learned, remember this. Pay attention to your places learn their stories, tell their stories, and find your way of celebrating all the layers of history, geology, that compose the landscape under your feet. Here in Wisconsin, there are countless stories and lots to celebrate, from the first tectonic events of the Pinocchian orogeny that Marsha Bjornrud told us about, to the distinctive purple quartzite of the Baraboo Hills and the billion-year-old rift in Lake Superior, to the tropical oceans of the Paleozoic and the repeated ice ages of the last two and a half million years. This place has seen endless change, and geology is the basis upon which we live our lives. Geology has spurred lead, copper, and iron booms. It also helps us understand how that same mining threatens indigenous foodways like wild rice harvests. The geology has created intimate, austere, and stunning landscapes. Without these billions of years of history happening exactly as they did, we wouldn't be here in the Badger State. So take this with you, take this knowledge, this deep context of the world and stories under our feet, and use it to inform a deeper and more thoughtful connection to the land upon which you walk. So, that's the end of the full episodes for Season 1 of Under Our Feet, The Geology of Wisconsin. The astute listeners out there will notice I was careful to specify full episodes. That's because this season isn't really over. Following this, I'm putting together a series of current events in Wisconsin geology. These are processes that are ongoing, that humans are a part of, that are shaping the future of our landscape, our earth, and our water. For example, we'll cover lakeshore erosion on Lake Michigan, or groundwater contamination from industrial chemicals. Make sure you stay subscribed and stay tuned for that. 
There's also some Patreon subscriber mini-episodes coming up. For a subscription of over 15 a month or more, supporters of the show get to decide on a topic that I'll cover in a short episode. If you have an idea, it's not too late. Check out the link to Patreon at our website, uofpod.org. You can also get bumper stickers starting at 3 bucks a month, t-shirts, and other perks over there. Thanks to the 11 amazing supporters that are already subscribed. That's Donna Molinick, Bill and Georgia Ringel, Stephen Bry and Kaylee Wilson, Katie Demetz, Tofu, Embark Badu, Ethan Parrish, Nate Beckley, Sam Smith, Sullivan Molinick, and Andrea Dutton. Again, check out the link at uofpod.org to join that awesome list. After that, we'll come back with a new topic for Season 2. Stay tuned. Thanks for coming along on this ride, and for staying on it as the show grows and evolves. I couldn't have done it without watching the download numbers go up every day. Thanks to each and every one of you that listens. Also, much appreciation to the American Geophysical Union, particularly Shane Hanlon, Olivia D'Ambrosio, and Liz Landau. We'll be back in a few weeks with the first current event in Wisconsin geology. In the meantime, remember to keep your mind on the world under your feet.